pastor. Find the book of 1 Peter chapter 4, if you would, please. 1 Peter chapter 4 in the Word of God. What a great day it's been. I tell you what, church, let me just say this. Keep bringing lost folks. Keep bringing lost folks. Make your church such a welcoming place that a lost man, not necessarily would be comfortable here, but he's not uncomfortable walking in. And that balance is difficult. We don't, we, we don't want people who are lost to always feel comfortable throughout the entire service, but they ought to feel welcomed when they first come in. And we had people saved this morning because you were part of making them feel welcome at whatever stage it was, wherever you rubbed shoulders with them, you were part of making them welcome. And I just want to say I appreciate that. First Peter chapter 4 is where we are tonight. I want to look at one verse in the Word of God, and then we're going to embark on a little bit of a study of the Scripture and hopefully bring it home to a conclusion. First Peter chapter 4, the Bible says in verse 9, First Peter chapter 4 and verse 9, do you see it there? It says, use hospitality one to another without grudging. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. Help us, fathers, we look into the passage of Scripture before us today. Help us to understand the Word of God and help us to make application, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I am a person who loves tools, okay? Now, maybe there's some of you men like me, you love tools. I have a lot of different tools in my wood shop. I have sanders and saws and all of that, but for me, every woodworker is different. For me, one of the most useful tools in my shop is my table saw. Now, I do a lot of things with a table saw. Some people don't like the table saw because it's dangerous, and they're right. A table saw is very dangerous. But you can do a lot of different things with wood without a table saw. Brother Verlin, when I was in the Philippines, I watched a Filipino carpenter break down a 4 by 8 sheet of plywood with a handsaw. It was 102 degrees, and the humidity was about 98%, and here he is. My hat's off to him. God bless him. Not me. If I got to break down a 19-millimeter piece of plywood, 4 by 8 feet in diameter or in dimensions, I'm going to take it to a saw, and it's going to have electricity. And God bless the man in the Philippines, but I'm going to use that tool. Now, hear me. The Bible uses that kind of language in this verse. It says, use hospitality one toward another without grudging. Now, there's, there is something in our church and in our Christian life It is a tool. You ought to use it. I ought to use it. It is the tool of hospitality. I'm going to tell you, you can do a lot of things. You can do a lot of discipleship in the local church without the tool of hospitality. You can do a lot of of evangelism through the local church without the tool of hospitality. But just as I prefer certain tools in my wood shop, so you ought to at least consider using the tool of hospitality. Tonight, I would like to look at this matter of hospitality. I'd like us to understand what it means. The word hospitality means a friend of strangers. Now, everybody has a circle of friends, okay? So if I'm only nice to my friends, that doesn't mean I'm a, I'm a person of hospitality. I'm a person of hospitality when I find someone that I've never met, and I go up to them, and I befriend them, and I make them feel welcome. That is hospitality. And so the Bible says you and I are to use this tool. I want us to consider, first of all, a pattern of hospitality this evening. A pattern of hospitality. 
who in the Bible can I go to and look at his or her life and find an example of being a friend to strangers? I think there's one answer that towers above the rest. I think it's simply our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you take your Bible tonight and open with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11? Matthew chapter 11. We're looking at the Lord Jesus Christ who was a pattern of hospitality. If you want to look at someone who was a friend to strangers, the Lord Jesus Christ was that person. I'd like us to consider some things that were said about him, and then I'd like us to, to just delve a little bit deeper and understand why these things were said. We're in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11. Please uh, direct your attention to verse 16. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 16, notice what the Bible says. Jesus is speaking. He asks the question, but whereunto shall I liken this generation? I'm looking for a comparison, Jesus says. I want to know to whom or to what I can compare or liken this generation. He said, if we got a bunch of people around me, I don't, I don't know what to compare them to. Here's what I'll compare them to. Notice verse 16. It is like unto children sitting in the markets. And calling unto their fellows. So here's some children, and they're calling to some other children. What are they saying? Verse 17. They're saying, we have piped unto you, and ye have not danced. In other words, we played a really jumpy tune, and you didn't do anything. We've piped unto you, and you have not danced. All right. On the other hand, we have mourned unto you, and ye have not lamented. Oh, the first time we tried to play some happy music and it didn't phase you, didn't affect you one single bit. Then we tried to weep and cry and you didn't get, you didn't get on board with that either. I mean, it doesn't matter what we do. You're not, uh, you're not paying attention. You're not responding to what we're doing. That's what Jesus is saying. Now notice verse 18. For John came neither eating nor drinking. This is John the Baptist. John came neither eating nor drinking. That means he didn't do so in public. He had things to eat. And as a matter of fact, he ate some kind of weird things. He ate locusts and wild honey. I've got to know when I get to heaven, Pastor, did he pull the back legs off the locust first? Because if he didn't, them rascals will kick all the way down. And they kick hard. They kick mighty hard. When I was a boy growing up in South Carolina, we had locusts that were longer than my fingers. I mean, they get big. And I reckon there's some I, uh, the nutritional value that is there, I suppose. But uh, did he pull those back legs off? I got to know. And if you have any insight, I would love to have it after the service. But the Bible says he ate locusts and he ate wild honey. I suppose wild honey's not so bad as long as your wife goes and gathers it for you so you don't get stung. But uh, we don't read that John the Baptist was married. So I don't know how that worked out either. But the Bible says John came neither eating nor drinking. It means you didn't see him eating in public. You didn't see him taking a, a drink of water or whatever in public. That's what it means. Okay? And Jesus said John never ate with people. He, uh, he, he, never, he never was uh, a com a communing with people in that way. And notice verse 18. And they say, they've been saying a lot of things for a long time, haven't they? They say, Jesus said, he hath a devil. I've never seen him take one bite of food. He must be demon possessed. No. No, he's not demon possessed. That's the one side. Look at the other side, verse 19. The son of man, this is a contrast now, the son of man, in contrast to John, came eating and drinking. Now, what does that mean? That means he ate with people and he drank with people. In other words, he would sit down and have a meal with people. 
All right, so what did they say of John? They said, well, I've never seen him eat anything. He must have a devil. He must be possessed by a demon. The Lord Jesus came, and he ate with people. You could see him taking a bite of uh, fish and bread and that kind of thing. And so what did they say about him? They say, verse 19, behold a man gluttonous. Now, was it true that Jesus was a glutton? Yes or no? No. No. The Lord Jesus sat down and had a meal, but that didn't make him a glutton. And then it says, wait a minute, verse 19, and a wine-bibber. What does that mean? That means somebody that's, uh, that gets a little tipsy after a meal because he's drinking, he's drinking alcoholic beverages. Was that true of the Lord Jesus? No, it wasn't true of the Lord Jesus either. Neither of those were true. But now I want you to notice the third accusation in verse 19. Now we're talking about the Lord Jesus. We're talking about what they say. And we know what they say is often not true, but uh, sometimes they get it right. Notice it, it says, behold a man gluttonous, not true, wine bibber, not true. But then they say, and a friend of publicans and sinners. Now I want to ask you, when they said that Jesus was a friend of publicans and sinners, was that true or was that false? It was true, wasn't it? It was true. Jesus was the friend of publicans and sinners. Now, publicans, that's not a republican, okay? It's somebody that tells lies and raises taxes. That's, that's what it was in the... Maybe it was some Republicans I can name. Anyway, and that, 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 in the Bible, a publican is different. He was a liar. He was a cheat. He was known for immorality. That was the publicans in the Bible. And yet, every, all the Jews hated him, but Jesus was a friend of, of the publicans. He was a friend of the sinners. Now, these they, the, the they in this verse, they thought that was a great insult to the Lord Jesus. I submit to you, that is a great truth about the Lord Jesus. Now, if it's true that Jesus was a friend of publicans and sinners, i got to know why. What was it about the Savior that made people say of Him, He is a friend of sinners? He is a friend of publicans. I want to suggest to you two things. I want to suggest to you that Jesus was the friend of sinners, number one, because He would talk with anyone. He would talk with anyone. Now, don't, don't turn in your Bibles for sake of time, but we remember the story of the woman at the well. I hope we do. If not, you can jot down John chapter 4, and you can read the entire chapter and find out the story of the woman at the well. Here's what happened at the story of the woman at the well. The Lord Jesus sent the disciples down into the village to get something to eat. Go buy lunch is essentially what he's saying. Meanwhile, he said, I'm going to stay up here on the well. And uh, at the well, there was a woman who came in the middle of the day with her water pot to get some physical water out of a physical well. At that time, the Lord Jesus struck up a conversation with her in which he eventually led her to belief and faith in himself as the promised Messiah. All right? All that happened. Now, we find out from Jesus' conversation, this woman at the well was a wicked woman. Jesus said, thou hast had five husbands, and you're shacking up with a guy right now. You're living with a man, and he's not your husband. She she said, yeah, when you told me you didn't have a husband, you told me the truth. Because you've had five of them, they're all gone, and now you got another one, and you're not married to him, all right? So the the, the Lord Jesus was dealing with a Samaritan woman 
that nobody would have wanted to speak to. I don't even believe the, the men and women of Sychar wanted to speak to her, and that's why she came in the middle of the day. If you've ever been in a Mediterranean climate, you do as much work that is hard as you can in the morning and in the evening, not in the middle of the day. Because it's hot. It's hot. It's brutal. And so this woman knew that by coming in the middle of the day, the well would be deserted. She could, uh, she could get what she wanted, and no one would say anything to her about her past. And yet, this woman that no one wanted to talk to was addressed by Jesus Christ himself. So much so, the disciples, remember, they went down to buy food. They come back up the hill. They've got their, they've got their pastrami on rye or whatever it is that the, the Jews eat for lunch, and they're bringing it back, and, uh, and they find the Lord Jesus. And the Bible says they marveled that he talked with the woman. You can read it in John chapter 4. They, they looked at him and they said, Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman. Nobody said anything about it at the time, the Bible says. But they marveled that he would talk to her. Let me ask you a question. Is there anybody that you won't talk to? Here's how it happens in our society. In our society, we meet somebody that's got hair sticking up eight inches tall. It's every color of the rainbow and some colors that we wonder how they got to be. It looks like that he skydived from 30,000 feet and landed in your grandpa's tackle box, right? I mean, piercings all over, and you think, oh, man, I, that just, that just kind of hurts to look at it, you know, and, that, and th that's what some people look like. And you and I see, and then, and then there's some tats that, man, you don't want to look too close because uh, some of them are not so good. And, yeah, and so you, you and I see those kinds of people, and we, we sometimes wonder to ourselves, I'm not sure what they were thinking when they got that. And, hey, maybe they think now, all these years later, what was I thinking when I got all that, all right? But the reality is we can never allow prejudice to keep ourselves from talking to anyone. One of the most powerful verses in the Scripture is found in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and it says this. Such were some of you. It's only the grace of God that I am not the most heinous, wicked sinner that has ever walked this earth. It's only because the God of heaven has been working in my heart. And I want to tell you something. Those of us, the longer we've been saved, the easier it is for us to get uh, lifted up in self-righteousness. Let me tell you, Jesus did not fall prey to those temptations, he would talk to anybody. I want to submit to you a second reason Jesus was the friend of sinners. Number one, he would talk to anybody. Number two, he would eat with anybody. There is something about eating with people. When you sit down and have a meal with a person, it, it allows you to begin to engage one-on-one. -on -one. It's, it's, it's just an amazing thing. The Lord Jesus would do that. Again, you need not turn there, but I'll just give you a couple of references. Uh, the, Lord, the Lord Jesus sat down with a Pharisee in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, and verse 36. Here's what it says. And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And so the Bible says he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. He sat down and had a meal with this Pharisee. Now, if you know the life and the ministry of our Lord, our Lord was not real happy with the Pharisees. They were self-righteous people, and yet that didn't bother the Savior. He went down, and he had a meal in this Pharisee's home. We read further in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19 and verse 7, a man whose name we might recall, a man by the name of Zacchaeus. We know he was a wicked man because he was short. 
And we know that that's a problem. And so the Bible says, here was this man. He was not just a publican. He was the chief of the publicans, the Bible tells us. And the Bible says in Luke chapter 19 and verse 7, Jesus went to the house of Zacchaeus and ate with him. And when they saw it, there's they again. When they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was come to be a guest with a man that is a sinner. I mean, doesn't he know? Not only is Zacchaeus a publican, he's a short publican. It didn't bother the Lord Jesus. He would eat with anybody. Can I ask you something? When was the last time you had a sinner to eat with you? If we're not careful, we can remove ourselves from contact with these kinds of people. Be careful. Be careful. So the pattern, the pattern of hospitality is the Lord and Savior himself. I want us to consider, secondly, the people of hospitality. Now, the Bible says in 1 Peter 4 and verse 9, use hospitality one toward another. So that means, that, that means right there that you and I ought to be hospitable to people within the local church. Now, this is a church, and God, is, God has blessed the church, and the church is growing, growing. Let me just challenge you. Sunday night crowd, let me just challenge you. You find somebody next Sunday morning that you don't know, and you determine by the grace of God, if the schedule works out, I'm going to share a meal with this person before the next Sunday. You ought to do that. You ought to do that. It happens to our family all the time. We got, we're away for a matter of months, and we come back, and, man, there's all kinds of people in the church that I don't know. So what do we do? We use hospitality one toward another without grudging. That's what we do. And I go to my wife and say, okay, we're going to have these people into our home. I don't know them. We don't know anything about them. But we're going to have them into our home. And we're going to be a friend to people that we do not currently know. I don't know about you, but you may come to this church because you enjoy the family atmosphere. You may enjoy the fact that uh, there's a lot of people that know each other. And uh, let me tell you, as the church grows, if you want to preserve that family atmosphere, you can do it most easily with the tool of hospitality. By being a friend, you find somebody, next Sunday morning, you find somebody that you don't know, and you determine by the grace of God, I will extend an invitation to them, and we're going to get together so that I can be a friend to somebody that I don't currently know. That's important. That's important. So you and I ought to be a friend to people within the house of God. But wait a minute. We ought to be a friend to people outside the house of God. Take your Bible and find the book of 1 Corinthians. Can you do that, please? 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, when we come to the Word of God, we call this the book of 1 Corinthians. Here's what we mean by that. This is the first epistle given by inspiration of God to the church at Corinth. That's what we mean, okay? This was not the first letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. It was not. But it was the first letter that was given by inspiration of God. Okay, so it has been miraculously preserved by God, and we have it, and we can read it today. So, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Bible says in verse 9, are you there? 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 9. Let's notice what it says. It says, I wrote unto you in an epistle. Now, that is an uninspired epistle. We don't have it today because it wasn't inspired of God, it wasn't preserved of God, so it has been lost to antiquity. Okay? So the Apostle Paul said, in this other epistle, it was not given by inspiration of God, but I did write unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. Now, we would use the word hang out with today. 
don't hang out with fornicators. Who are fornicators? They are people who violate God's standard for human sexuality. And remember, God's standard for human sexuality is very, very simple. A man and a woman who are married to each other. It's very simple. Okay, that's God's design for human sexuality. Anything other than that is a sin in the sight of God. It constitutes fornication. It is an abomination in the sight of God. Okay, so the Apostle Paul says, I wrote to you in this epistle, and days gone by, do not hang out with fornicators. Don't company with them. Don't hang around with them. But now I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain myself a little bit more because I don't want you to get the wrong idea. Look at verse 10. Yet, not altogether with the fornicators of this world. So here's what he's saying. When I wrote to you not to hang out with fornicators, I didn't mean that you're supposed to altogether cut off all relationships with unsaved people just because they live a sexually deviant lifestyle. That's what he's saying. Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world. Or, we're in verse 10, or with the covetous who were covetous people. Covetous people believe that gain is godliness and they're after after greed and they're after uh, undue wealth. Let me tell you something. There's nothing wrong with a person being wealthy as long as they put God first. But there are people who believe that getting money and getting gain is the only thing. It's not the only thing. And those that are that way, we've got to be careful of them. But the Apostle Paul says, just because a person is covetous, I don't want you to cut him off. Or with the extortioners. Now, extortion is getting money from people by dishonest means. A hundred years ago, the mafia would come through the city and they would say, if you do not pay us money, you cannot make improvements to your place of business. Okay? And the the government came through and, and tried to round up the mafia and say, no, you can't do that. What you're doing is wrong. So now the mafia doesn't so much do it, the local government does it. We just call it a permit today. They used to call it extortion, now they call it a permit. But at any rate, uh, the, the reality is there are people who extort money. It's wrong, but they do it anyway. And the Bible says there's going to be times when you're going to you're gonna have to have a relationship with these kind of people or with idolaters. So the Apostle Paul gives us this list of sinful people. He says, I don't want you to altogether cut off fornicators. I don't want you to altogether cut off covetous people. I don't want you to altogether cut off uh, extortioners. And I don't want you to altogether cut off idolaters. Because if you did, verse 10, the end of verse 10, for then must ye needs go out of the world. If you're going to cut off relationships with people just because they're sinners, there's no reason for you to continue living on this earth. Ooh. But now, verse 11, I have written unto you not to keep company of any man that is called a brother. Ah, now we're getting somewhere. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one, so not, uh, know not to eat. So now we're getting the, this understanding. So the people of hospitality, of course the people of God, use hospitality one toward another. But here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I learned that I'm supposed to be hospitable to people outside the church who have not yet trusted Christ as Savior. The pattern of hospitality is the Lord Jesus. The people of hospitality, it's really kind of 
doesn't leave anybody out. I want us to consider some pitfalls of hospitality. What are some things that keep us from being hospitable? When I think of hospitality, I can't think of hospitality without the concept of at least sometimes a person opening his or her home. Now, I'm going to give you some pitfalls of hospitality. I have three written down, but these are things that I have observed from time to time that keep us from being hospitable. The first one I call the better homes and gardens syndrome. All right? Now, if you're a man, I just want you to know that you're going to hear very soon that Evangelist Paul Crow has started a class action lawsuit against better homes and gardens. And here's why. Better Homes and Gardens preys upon the tendency of some women to be a little bit discontent. Better Homes and Gardens, I mean, just, just think about that title for a minute. Brother John, you have a home, but it could be better. Maybe you have a garden, but it could be better. And if you will pay us money, if you will pay us money, we will give your wife ideas so that she will look at pictures of a home where nobody has lived for 10 years, and she will see the decor in that home, and she will say, wow, that's a cute, whatever that word means, that's a cute idea. Maybe we could get that for our home. And the assumption is your home is not quite good enough, but it could be good enough if you will pay us money. And then once you pay us money and we give your dear wife the ideas, then she will talk to you about going to uh, Menards or Home Depot or whatever they got in Greeley, and, uh, and uh, you'll pay more money to them so you can make your home better. Let me tell you something, ladies. The pictures that they take in better homes and gardens, there haven't been any children, not children, not grandchildren, not anybody around those homes for a long time. Right? Am I right? Am I telling the truth? That's right. And those gardens, I promise you, I, I think that they're not even real plants, I think. I think they're made out of plastic because they don't have real fungus that comes. And, and maybe you don't have fungus in, in Colorado. We do in Mississippi. It's a, it, it's a climate where we got those kinds of problems. What am I saying? There is a, a standard that is placed upon women. It's not just better homes and gardens. It's now Instagram. You ever wonder what's behind the camera in an Instagram photo? I mean, this Instagram photo, oh, look at this end table that I got, and I got it from a, from a garage sale, and I paid 50 cents for it, and I paid uh, $3 in paint, and now I think I'm going to sell it for $79.55. And, you know, all of this kind of thing. And I think, well, what's on the other side? I think it's old paint rags. I think it's the drop cloths that they used. I think, it's a, I think it's a disaster, but that one little spot where the camera's focusing in, you ladies look at it like, man, that looks so good. That's because they didn't pan around and show you the rest of it. That's why. But here's what it's done. The Better Homes and Gardens Syndrome says, I am not going to open my home to anyone until my house is just right. Now, God bless you, ma'am. God bless you if you want to have a tidy home. That's commendable. But may I help you this evening? Nobody has ever been reached by the tidiness of your home. Nobody's ever walked into your home and said, oh, I can't find any dust. Let me get saved right now. No. It hasn't happened that way. It hasn't happened that way. 
But you know what? I have seen, I've seen the pressure that ladies put on themselves to be a pitfall from being hospitable. Now, there's a balance there, and you walk with God, and you figure out what the balance is as you stand before God for yourself. I'm not going to try to dictate that to you. I'm just saying, if the matter of being a friend of strangers includes opening my home, I had better make certain that some woman-made standard isn't keeping me from obeying the Word of God. Let me give you another pitfall. I call it with the, the hostess with the mostest syndrome. First one is better homes and gardens. This one's hostess with the mostest. What is that? Well, I'm not going to have people in my home. I'm not going to. I'm not going to do that because Sue is just a better. She's just a better hostess than I am. And I listen. Don't let that stop you either. Nobody has been reached by the tidiness of your home. Hear it. Nobody's been reached by the tastiness of your food. Nobody picked up your Pinterest hors d'oeuvre, popped it in their mouth, Brother Joe, and said, that's it, I'm going to get right with God right here. Nobody ever said that. Now, if you have good food, thank God. Sir, if your wife uh, serves you good hors d'oeuvres, I hope she feeds you a good meal afterwards too. But, uh, I, I mean, if, if it's good food, you thank God for that. But let me tell you something. Don't, don't ever let that be a pitfall. My family and I lived in the state of Indiana. They were difficult days for us, difficult days for us financially, and just a lot of things piled on us at once. We used to have people over to our home every, every Sunday night after church. You know what we could afford to feed them? Popcorn. That's what we had. Big old bowl, popcorn. And it wasn't the microwave popcorn either. We did the old-fashioned kind, all right? It's a lot cheaper, by the way, and it tastes a whole lot better. But that's what we had. And you know what? There were all kinds of dis there was discipleship opportunities that just sprang up organically. There were times that we could, uh, we could help people through all kinds of crises in their life, and nobody stopped coming to the Crow's house because all they ever got was popcorn on a Sunday night. I'm saying this. You and I need to learn to be a friend of strangers. And if that includes opening our home from time to time, don't let the fact that somebody else is a better host or hostess than you stop you. I'm speaking of pitfalls. Here's the third and final pitfall that we'll look at. Not only the better homes and gardens syndrome and the hostess with the mostest syndrome, but here's the third syndrome. Us four, no more. Heard about the man that was getting down on his knees to pray. He said, God, bless me and my wife, John and his wife. Us four, no more, amen. Now, nobody ever really prays that way, but boy, don't we kind of get to the place where we can, we can operate that way? Somebody says to me, well, Brother Paul, I'm hospitable. I have my friends and my family over all the time. Okay, it's wonderful that you have your, your friends over on a regular basis, and if you can still tolerate your family enough to have them over, that's wonderful too. But let me just tell you something. Let me just tell you something. That's not the definition of hospitality. The definition of, of hospitality is not I'm a friend to my friends. The definition of hospitality is I am a friend to strangers, to people I do not know. No one has been reached by the tidiness of your home. No one has been reached by the tastiness of your food. And no one has been reached by the tedium of your circle. I mean, I got the people that I hang out with and that's it. No, 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 no. It's time to branch out, okay? It's time to branch out. Now, in closing, I want to talk to you very, very briefly about the power of hospitality. 
there are things that we can talk about. There are tools that we can use. But I just want you to know there is a power in Christian hospitality. Christian hospitality, there's a little bit of a risk there because all of a sudden, Pastor, I become vulnerable. People see me as I really am. But you know what? That can also have great power because we live in a world of the fake. We live in a world of uh, electronic friends. We live in a world of, uh, of tweets that I swear they're done by a robot. There's not anybody that's that mean and clever at the same time. But the re- reality is we're, looking, we're living in a world that looks for the authentic. What a better place to show them than in the, in the realm of Christian hospitality. And if that means opening your home, then by all means use hospitality one toward another without grudging. I want to give you just in closing a story of a woman by the name of Rosario. Rosaria. Rosaria was a woman who was, honestly, she was the antithesis of everything that the Platte Valley Baptist Church believes. The year was 1999. And in 1999, it's, it's ballooned since then, but in 1999, there was one university in all the United States of America that had a women's studies program. A women's studies program basically goes like this. We, the Western world is nothing but one big patriarchy. Men are the problem. So let's try to get men out of our lives and live as much of our lives apart from men as we possibly can. That's the Women's Studies program, okay? If you're interested in a degree in Women's Studies program, if you will just take the recording of this message, I could save you many multiplied thousands of dollars, all right? Now, in 1999, there was only one Women's Studies program in all the United States, and that was at Syracuse University. Rosaria was in charge of the Women's Studies program. She had a Ph.D. in English. She was a fantastic writer. And so, in 1999, an organization, an ecumenical Christian organization called the Promise Keepers came to Syracuse, New York. Rosaria took pen in hand, and she wrote an opinion to the, the editor of the local newspaper. They read her opinion. In her opinion, she excoriated promise keepers. She said promise keepers embodies the patriarchy that is holding this country down and has held this country down for hundreds of years, and on and on it went. And that's, that's what Rosaria did. And as from a grammatical standpoint, from an English standpoint, her, her letter was very well written. She, in fact, was a writer. She was in the process of doing study on the religious right. What does the religious right believe? In case you hadn't figured it out, she would classify this church as the religious right, okay? And she herself wanted nothing to do with them. She was in a lesbian relationship in which she, this was before that the marriage was, uh, was, was part of our country with, with, with the same sex and all that. But she was living in a lesbian relationship and had been for 11 years, I'm telling you, this woman was everything that this church is not. She found all kinds of responses, letters that came in after she, her letter was published in the local paper. There were some that were in solidarity with her. They agreed with what she had to say. There were others that did not agree with what she had to say. And so she took to filing them, those that were in favor of what she had said and those that were against what she had said. And so the the piles grew as, as letters came in, some for and some against her. But there was another letter that came in. And she didn't know where to file this letter. At first, she she read the letter, and then she threw it in the trash can. 
But then she said, no, I can't do that. I, there's something about it. And she pulled it out of the trash can, but she didn't know to whether to put it over here or to put it over here. And, and she read it over again, and the, and the, letters, the letter began to ask some deep, searching questions like, what information causes you to form these fundamental assumptions that then led you to these conclusions? She thought, she thought to herself, wow, that's deep thinking. And in the letter was an invitation to this woman. The man said, would you join my wife and me for a meal sometime? For two weeks, she read that letter, and she put it back down, but she couldn't get away from it. Finally, she decided, okay, I will go. She said to herself, I think this man is part of the religious rite, and if I go to his house, I can get firsthand information for my upcoming expose book. And so she went to his house. His name was Ken. His wife's name was Foy, F-O-Y, Foy. Ken and Foy sat down with Rosaria, and they enjoyed a meal together. They didn't open a Bible that first night, but they did give her an invitation to come back. In process of time, Rosaria found herself going again and again and again to Ken's house. I don't know what time it was, if it was the third time or the fourth time, I don't know. But eventually, Ken did get out a Bible. You see, you see, Ken knew Jesus Christ as Savior, he and Foy both. And Ken and Foy, there in their home, having extended hospitality to this woman who was against everything that Ken was for, Ken eventually took out a Bible and began to explain to Rosaria how that you and I are created in the image of God. And because we are created in the image of God, we have a duty and a right and an obligation to be who God has created us to be. And in process of time, Rosaria realized the lifestyle I've been living is not pleasing to God. In process of time, she came to understand that she was a sinner. And in process of time, she bowed her knee and she trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. What a story. But a story that all started with a Christian couple who decided, I will use the tool of hospitality. Let me ask you, Platte Valley Baptist Church, will you? Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to look into your word. Lord, perhaps we've been a little bit deep tonight and maybe I've gone long. But Lord, I believe this is so important in our world and it's something certainly that the scripture speaks of. So tonight, I pray that we would surrender ourselves and indeed our homes to you to use as tools of hospitality. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. Now, I just want to ask you tonight, if you know the Lord Jesus is your Savior, I've been preaching to you.